the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As we near the end of the book of Revelation, we take one more look at the release of Satan after the thousand-year reign of Christ. Join us as we explore Revelation together here on Abounding Grace. And again, welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're continuing our survey of Revelation today, and we're back in chapter 20, the first 10 verses, as we explore the release of Satan. We invite you to spend time with us today as we come to an understanding of what is being written to us here in Revelation from the Apostle John. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn and now 36 through 43 then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said explain to us the parable of the tares of the field and he said the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world And as for good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has, who has, he who has ears, uh, let him hear. So, here you have basically a philosophy of history. It says that in the world Christ has sown seed. And the seed is the sons of the kingdom. It is a wheat field, so to speak. Now, even though someone would come and sneak in at night and plant weed seeds, it's not a pasture of weeds with a significant number of weeds planted in that wheat field. So the servants come and ask, should we pluck up the tares? 
The farmer said no. Because in their immaturity, these weeds and the immature wheat look alike. And it's very difficult for anyone except the trained eye to distinguish the wheat from the tares in their immaturity. So wait until they both reach maturity. And then when the wheat looks like wheat and the tares look like tares, then it is clear which is which, and Christ will come and root out all of the tares from his wheat field. Now notice the philosophy of history. Both the wheat and tares come to maturity in history. That is, the longer history proceeds, the more Christians are going to look like Christians, and the more wheat is going to look like wheat, and the more tares are going to look like tares. So as history goes on, as Bonson and Van Til and others would say, both the wheat and the tares will come to epistemological self-consciousness. And what I mean is, as history goes on, God is going to cause the sons of the kingdom to mature so that they look like the sons of the kingdom and are not compromised and are much less influenced by the culture. Like, for instance, Abraham. Abraham was a great man of faith, but he was a polygamist. He was influenced by his culture. He wasn't mature. But as history proceeds, evil culture will influence less and less the true seeds of the kingdom as the enemies of the gospel look more and more like the enemies of the gospel. So when Satan does, what Satan does when he is released is he gathers these tares that now look like tares. Many have faked being Christians just to get along, but that is where all of these people come from. So an intensification of hatred for God and a growing self-conscious humanism are to be expected in history among the tares as history goes on. And then there is the war, the total war, war on everything, much like William Tecumseh Sherman when he invaded the South and burned everything down and then salted the earth so that even to this day there are fields in our South where nothing will grow. Total war. But it's not a war of tanks nuclear bombs and black helicopters and things of that sort. This war in which Satan will muster the remaining pagan nations to fight is a war of words and ideas and philosophies and worldviews and theology. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 19, and you'll see that that is the case. Revelation 19... And I will first read verse 11 and then ver read verses 13 through 16. Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And now 13 through 16. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And he, and on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, this war that Satan is mustering the remaining tares to fight against the kingdom of God is a war of words, a war of philosophy and theology and worldviews. But here is the basic thing to bear in mind. The revolt fails. And that is important to bear in mind because God releases Satan and then destroys him forever. But let's go on. The third thing Satan seeks to accomplish after his release is to, is to surround God's people in a last-ditch effort of intimidation and destruction. So let's look again at our text. He has deceived the nations outside of God's kingdom. He has gathered the tares, and then he surrounds God's people in one great and war to intimidate and destroy them. Verse 9, and they came up. Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention in chapter 8, in verse 8, it talks about a large number of people. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The church here, the beloved city of God, the covenant community are described as a military camp. And they are described, as they are in various places of Psalms, as the beloved city. Now, I want you to notice again that it is during this millennium in which the saints reign and sit on thrones, yet they still have to struggle against evil and carry on a war with Satan. So we're not talking about heaven, and we're not talking about some type of utopia. We are talking about life on earth. So this military camp, Christ's kingdom, that beloved city of God, is surrounded by Satan and his tares, but instead of bringing down the global kingdom of Christ, Satan and his armies are defeated forever. He gets absolutely nowhere. This revolt does not weaken the church. It does not weaken the kingdom of God. It does not overrun the kingdom of God. It is a total failure. Verse 9 again, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And as soon as they did that, fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. The revolt failed, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent fire from heaven down and destroyed the entire metropolitan area. And here the church and the kingdom of Christ are not even singed. Zion stands undefeated. Satan's last attempt is a complete failure. Then that great verse 10 that speaks of Satan's defeat and eternal punishment. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, please get the picture. Toward the end of the millennium, 
right before the second coming, which is symbolized by fire coming down from heaven, Satan is released in his effort to gather the tares against the kingdom and destroy it. He gets nowhere. Fire from heaven consummates Satan's defeat, which is obviously a reference to the second coming of Christ at the end of history, when Christ will cast Satan and his people, or his minions, into endless torment in hell. We know this because 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to, use as, and, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, and he comes to be glorified in his saints that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So here it talks about the flaming fire coming and God taking retribution upon his enemies. So you see how Satan's revolt ends. But then it says, just to let you know, there's no possibility is ever going to be released or ever going to, be, going to be able to rise again. I mean, this is thorough, forever here. He is finished. And remember, this is at the end of the millennium. He has some measure of freedom, but he's still restrained by Christ. Then he is released and he fails. Then there is a second coming and his power is finished. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, you have people who talk about hell and that there Satan harasses and torments people. Well, beloved, there's no truth to that. Satan will be tormented day and night in hell. But here's the line that I love. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire in Brimstrom, where the beast and the false prophet are also. In other words, at the second coming of Christ, when Satan is cast into the lake of fire, who does he meet there? Who is already in hell when Satan is cast down? It is the beast and the false prophet. They're already there. Now, who is the beast and the false prophet? Well, we've already studied this. You have the beast from the sea, which, is, which represented in the first century tyrannical, anti-Christian, persecuting Rome, and then, of course, any other nation that treats people the way Rome did in the first century of the church. And the beast from the land, re, land represented apostate Judaism in the first century and reprobate apostate religions that side with tyranny and the state against the church throughout history. Now, as Satan is cast into hell at the second coming of Christ, which is the very end of the world, and when he is thrown into hell, he sees tyrannical governments and apostate religions already there, that means they had to be defeated and cast into hell in history before the return of Christ. 
So at the second coming of Christ, Satan will be cast into hell. And when he goes to hell, sometimes before then, in history, God is going to put an end to anti-Christian civil governments and apostate religions and wipe them off the face of the earth, sending them to hell in history before the return of Christ. So that when Christ comes back to earth, he will come back to an earth where his enemies have been globally defeated. And that world will have been Christian for century after century. Let me make some concluding applications. Over against the view that I have explained today, which is not new. This is not coming just from me. This view has been around for, for hundreds of years. I didn't come up with this. This was the mainstream reform position at one time. And if you want a great book on Revelation 20 and Matthew 24, it's one of the books God used in my life back in the 1970s to understand this view of eschatology. And it is called The Eschatology of Victory. It's not a very, it's not a very long book, and it is really quite readable. It is by J. Marcellus Kick. I recommend it to you all. It is an outstanding book. But there is in this, but there is in this view of this, there is this view of dispensationalism that says this. Any day there will be a rapture when Christians will be snapped out of history. There will be seven years of terrible tribulation with an antichrist harassing everyone. Then at the end of that tribulation period, God is going to come and bring the people who were raptured in heaven back to earth. And you know, really, I think that's kind of cruel. Think about it, bringing people back to earth who have been in heaven. Then Christ sits up a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth. He restores the bloody sacrificial system, and then he sets up his international capital in Jerusalem, setting up largely Jewish Christians as the head of various other cities and municipalities all over the globe. After a thousand years, the remaining enemies of Christ will literally surround Jerusalem with their tanks and their bombs and their armies and entrap Jesus in Jerusalem where God will have to come and rescue Jesus with fire from heaven. Now, why can't people see through that immediately? I, I don't know. I've asked that question I don't know how many times because, beloved, this is a second humiliation of Christ. Christ was humiliated for 30 years. Then he was raised from the dead and ascended to God's right hand and exalted over everything as King of kings and Lord of lords. Then he supposedly comes back to earth and sets up a literal kingdom in Jerusalem, rules the world from there for a thousand years, and at the end of that period, the poor guy gets entrapped by all of the enemies and tanks and sophisticated weaponry, and God has got to come to Jesus' rescue. The exalted Christ, God has to rescue? And these people come to Revelation 20 to make that point. But there's not anything in this text to support that Christ rules in Jerusalem, and it is surrounded by enemy armies. So it takes fire from God to rescue him. That is a second humility. 
And it is degrading to Christ. But then there's another view of most amillennialists. They have the view that the church must wait until the very end of history and after the end of history to see the defeat of the church's enemies. And until then, Satan is in control and the church just declines. Until then, Satan continues to beseech the church and weaken her and cause her to compromise. And the defeat of Satan and the enemies of the church will not take place until after the very end of the church. What does our text say? Our text says that the anti-Christian state, the apostate church, the enemies of the church are already destroyed and in hell before Satan was thrown in there at the second coming of Christ. They were already in the lake of fire when Satan was cast into it. That indicates a defeat of the enemies of the church before the end of history. Now I have a question for you before I finish. Why would God release Satan? Why is that in his plan? Why is it in the making? Why does God plan to release Satan right toward the end of history? He's been bound. Satan doesn't break loose. God set him loose on purpose. So what was God thinking when he planned to release Satan for a short period just before the second coming of Christ after the world has already been largely converted? What is God's purpose in the release of Satan? Well, let me give you some possibilities and then we are finished. Number one, to demonstrate even more spectacularly the victory of Christ. It is as if God said, okay, I'm going to release Satan. So Satan, take your best shot. Let's see how good you are. And then God taunts him. And basically, the release of Satan does not degrade the church, but spectacularly displays how glorious and total the victory of Christ will be. Second, God planned the release of Satan to vindicate the righteous judgment of God. You set this dragon loose after thousands of years of being bound. Surely you would think he's learned something. Surely he's repented. Surely he's not as bad as he once was. Wrong. He is still a rebel against God. And his destruction in hell is a righteous vindication of God's judgment. Third, God planned to release Satan to magnify the grace of God, which continues to sustain and preserve his people. Here is Satan, the power that is greater than any human power, and he gathers the remaining tear nations of the earth, surrounds the church and the kingdom of God and his military camp, that beloved city, to destroy her and cause her to compromise. But God's grace sustains the church and Satan's revolt fails. Fourth, God planned to release Satan to cause Satan to experience the full effect of his defeat at Calvary. 
when he will be released at the end of time, the whole world will not fall into chaos and it will not be destroyed. God destroys and restrains Satan at every turn, thereby crushing him and establishing eternal redemption for his people. Think on this. Peace and prosperity seem to incline the heart to complacency. And that is why a thing such as this can happen after years of victory and peace. So maybe God is teaching his people, you and I, during this Christianized period, don't get complacent. Be vigilant against evil at all times. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866. 8665607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Mm-hmm.